Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 132, The Rapid Fall. Over the winter and spring of 1407, planning had begun to renew the war against Glyndor from the English side. Backed with a peace treaty effectively with the French, financing and consistent men and supplies coming from the Parliament, King Henry now felt secure in his position and able to do what he wanted to do, which was enforce the war. So he turned to his son, Prince Henry, who had at this point become one of the better leaders on the side for the English, and his abilities on the field, which would show in France less than a decade later, was being used to good effect in Wales. Owen Glyndor, to date, had been able to ward off English assaults by using an attack-and-fade technique, which largely avoided bigger sieges and conflicts where superior numbers of the English could be used against them to good effect. However, the only time this changed was when the Welsh had help from their French allies, but of course that had ceased to be reality, and a lot of his protection and ability to carry out these military raids and defeating or at least sapping the supply lines of the English had dried up. Glyndor had in the meantime built up an apparatus of government based from former English fortified towns and castles on the coast of the north and west of Wales. The two key fortresses in his hands had been Aberystwyth, which resides near the Abbey of Strata Florida, the monastery which was key to the old Gwyneth Kings, and as well his seat of power, which was in Harlech Castle, a foreboding building built on the edge of a cliff face and something incredibly difficult to take, as has been proven in the past. Both castles were built by King Edward during the subjugation of Gwyneth, and in the case of Harlech, as mentioned, was extremely difficult to defeat. But if the English were going to win this war, or at least walk away with some type of win condition, they needed to stamp out the Welsh control of these key points. Welsh independence was already in danger, and launching attacks here would put even more pressure on Owen. It would also effectively cut off the head of the government. If 1406 was quiet, it was broken in the spring of 1407 by men marching across the midsection of Wales. Prince Henry and thousands of troops marched in with one of Glyndor's major mid-Welsh castle towns, Aberystwyth, as we mentioned, and we're told he brought with him 538 pounds of gunpowder, 971 pounds of saltpeter, and 303 pounds of sulfur. The almost 20-year-old prince had brought with him siege engines, 600 men-at-arms, 1,800 archers, and likely a number of other men not accounted for in the record. But the other most important weapon he brought were cannons. Cannons had been a feature in Britain for about 80 years at this point, being used by the English in 1327 against the Scots for the first time that we have in recorded history. But this was really the first use of them on the island as proper siege weapons. The English would use the cannons to affect and destroy walls and buildings. While cannons were used at least since the 12th century in China and spread from there around to the west, they'd never really been used effectively to deal with fortifications. They would 
change warfare dramatically over the next 70 years as they would become much more important to the attackers because of how effectively they could deal with these fortifications. Part of this was, of course, the early uses of them were not necessarily originally meant to hurl massive rounds at buildings. In some cases, there were arrow mounts that were placed in them and used to fire those. In some cases, they just fired stones, uh, very similar to the, to the other types of siege weapons like catapults and trench bows and things of that nature. So they weren't radically different to this point. This would all start to change, of course, as the late medieval era continued and as we moved into early modern Europe to the point where cannons would be functionally unrecognizable from what the Chinese had been using back in the 12th century. This would force defenders, of course, to create more and more elaborate fortifications to counter these batteries and also to create their own artillery pieces, which would then deal with these various other artillery. One could say that we still live in this age of modern artillery as it owes a great deal to this invention. Hand cannons and arquebuses, what would be considered small personal weapons, were still either in very early development or too expensive for most battlefields at this stage. The use of them, such as placing what effectively looked like a little cannon on top of a, uh, a pole. Yeah, they weren't very mobile, they were heavy, they were hard to load, and their effectiveness, even going into, I would say, late early modern Europe, was still debatable at this point. And if you didn't have a lot of them, they, their ability to affect a battlefield was still pretty minor. And they would, of course much like the cannons, start to appear with more and more frequently from this point onward, however, until they became general use in commonplace warfare from about the 17th century onward. The wars between the Islamic Ottomans and the Eastern Roman Empire, who are commonly but mistakenly called the Byzantines, would come to an end in the mid-15th century due to the pounding on the walls and the destruction that was placed on the massive fortified city of Constantinople. They would actually defeat it with the cannons that they would use in these long siege battles that would be fought that would effectively just destroy them. Of course, the other thing that was used quite effectively during siege warfare, something I think we may or may not have talked about in the past, is uh, there would be people who would, as they call it, undermine the castle walls. So what they would do in effect is they would dig under the castle walls in tunnels, set explosives under these walls, and then light the explosives. And of course, when those would go off, it would it would destabilize the walls, and the walls would start to crumble. And that's where uh, the another development in military strategy was to then countermine these people by basically sending sappers down to uh, try and defeat them before they could place these in positions where they could cause this problem. So very quickly, in a very short amount of time, it becomes a bit of an arms race to try and deal with each of these little developments. And of course, the Middle Ages is fairly notorious for developing fast responses to various weapon changes or armament changes or defensive structure changes. And they happen where 
in some cases, especially in this period where wars are pretty much endemic across Europe, they were changing constantly to try and make up for deficiencies that they were seeing in each other. And so you have these counter buildings and counter armors and, you know, you come out with a crossbows, we come out with plate mail, you come out with this, we come out with that. And yet still one of the most effective weapons on the battlefield is a pike, which is just basically a pointy stick that's very long and horses don't like to run up against it. And if you give a bunch of peasants pikes, they would actually remain fairly effective right up until the 18th century because of how inexpensive they are, how obviously easy they are to use, and how little effort you have to do in order to make them very effective. Whereas guns up until the invention of the cartridge don't really have that development, don't really have the same sort of effect. And we'll talk a little bit more about that here. They, And that's just the rapid changes in responses and counter-responses working for and against both sides. Henry and his forces, going back to our point, position themselves for a long grinding siege with the castle at Aberystwyth, knowing that taking the castle would almost be impossible without the tried and true tactics of isolation and starvation, something that even cannons were not as effective to do at this stage. It, the idea that you would line up hundreds of cannons and fire them at walls until you smash the walls doesn't really happen at this stage. You have maybe 10 or 15. It, they're expensive. They're unusual. You know, the, the ability to use them is something of an art form at this stage. And so there isn't uh, a lot of understanding of how they work or how to use them effectively, and, and it only comes in over time. But nonetheless, the fact that they're brought into this battle becomes incredibly important to easing some of the other options and methods that Henry could use elsewhere. The castle in its current shape hardly gives you much to go by if we're to look at it from a modern perspective. If you, say, go to Google Map and, and look up Aberystwyth Castle and have a look around at the grounds and, and the areas near it, You'll see certain things will stand out, but the one thing you won't really see standing out is most of the castle. Now, we have to be honest and say that modern castles, as they sit now, unless they've been heavily renovated, will look pretty downtrodden and, and won't look very whole anyway, uh, in part because something that does happen over time as buildings go into disrepair and disuse, especially government buildings, is that local citizens will start to take stones when they need them. And in the place, places like Aberystwyth especially, there was a lot of healthy amounts of stone available, and so a lot of buildings actually get built with that stone in and around the town and city that now exists. So, And we'll get into why that is. Specifically, uh, the reason why the castle's in its current shape is because... If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. 
Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. And this will be likely discussed in a future episode. It was at one time the location of the Royal Mint during the English Civil War, about 240 years after this particular battle. And the royalists actually controlled it for quite a period of time as that about nearly 10 years it was used as the Royal Mint uh, in 1649. However, the parliamentarians... uh, actually seized control of it and then declared that it needed to be blown up. And so Aberystwyth Castle was effectively erased off the landscape because the parliamentarians were trying to put a stop to the royalist control. So now when you go there, what you see is very, very different and very much not what you would have seen in the time of Owen Glyndor, for sure. Um, To kind of give you an idea the positioning of the moat uh, and the castle, oh, it was an overlooking spot at the Irish Sea. When you go to Aberystwyth, you can, it's very much on a low plane. It's not on a height like some of the other castles you'll see in and around places like uh, even Swansea to a degree. But Swansea Castle is kind of similar in the fact that it is elevated, but it's not 
elevated super high and it is close to the to the Bristol Channel. So obviously that's in part because one of the things you're trying to interdict is is people traveling past you uh, via the big watery thing. Um, so you have this opportunity to kind of use it as a base of operations to do that as well. Um, you have Aberyst with the town and the village, which then sits on this plain area where, you know, you can grow a lot of food and is kind of an area of valley settlement, which is a little different than, than the surrounding areas, which are hillier and, and much more mountainous, if you want to describe it as such. So they, it would have been a perfect spot for those kind of things. And very important in that respect. It also happened to be a border village between powerful Welsh kings in both the north and the south, and often fell to one or the other depending on who was in decline or ascendancy. The area was settled going back to the Bronze Age, and there's evidence of at least an Iron Age fort or enclosure at the top of one of the hills on the south side of Aberystwyth, which actually overlooks the modern town. Um, it was likely a point of trade and transport in the middle of Wales, going back to the earliest settlements of humanity in that area, and likely because of its closeness to the Irish Sea, it would also have the ability for people to travel back and forth across it. And so you have this effectively a highway in the middle of a area of calm in the middle of the bay where you have this spot. So it's an ideal location for a lot of this stuff, which is part of the reason why I got fought over so much, much like a lot of things. If you're in a good position, it's always probably going to be bad for you uh, in that era. And to be fair, eras before and after. Uh, construction of the Aberystwyth Castle began in 1277 after Edward I's defeat of Llewellyn ap Griffith in at least the first defeat of him. Work was not fully completed until 1289 after the last King of Gwyneth and Prince of Wales had died. In 1407, as I said, the castle was on decline due in part because of the salt and sea erosion as it sits on the coast and unlike many other castles is not as elevated at height and thus sea air and, and water hits it more often. In fact, today you can still see some of the erosion that's happening at the base of the castle. There's quite a lot of it happening, at least on the stuff that faces directly at the ocean, it's, or the ocean, at, directly at the Irish Sea itself. Um, now, along with all that, it's more of a shell, as I said, blown up in 1649. It only has some walls, one turret in actual intact and it has a walkway with an actual area where you can kind of see the, the travel path that would have been there uh, that's still somewhat intact as well. I have personal experience as I spent some time in the Aberystwyth area when I first actually traveled to Wales and, and on my second uh, stay in, in the country I did spend a little bit of time there again and so I've actually been there and it was interesting to kind of give you an, an idea my first experience in 1999 when I was there probably one of the most shocking things to my poor little 
North American mind was walking into this ancient monument and seeing graffiti on the on the castle wall and just going, oh my goodness. And you are kind of taken aback because you don't expect that. I don't know why you don't expect that in all actuality, but but at the same time, that, that was something that came to mind. And part of that is because while the castle is uh, protected as an ancient monument, it's not protected as far as any sort of barrier between you and it. You can go straight up to the building even today and you are allowed to walk in and out without spending any money, without buying a ticket or anything. Uh, there's there's none of that. It is kind of an uncontrolled area to kind of walk around. So so things happen, obviously, that may not happen at a more protected location like Cardiff or Carnarvon or even uh, Harlech, which are protected monuments by Caddo, so have a totally different perspective and and protection point around it the other thing is too is you realize how little of it's left and again going back to it, one of the points that was made is after it was blown up a lot of the because so much of it was was littered about uh, a lot of the local citizens took the rocks and used them for their own means and this is something we see in archaeology quite a bit uh, if you watch any sort of archaeological program they'll talk about stones being thieved out and in some cases the only evidence that you have that they were there is the fact that there are indents in the ground which show that those items used to be there and so that is something that happens I mean obviously you're going to reuse stuff if nobody else is using it and it makes sense so buildings that had existed for one purpose get either reused for another purpose or in some cases are just literally taken apart and people use them for other purposes completely uh, you'll see this in cases where buildings that are built in late medieval and early modern europe have you know stones and logs and all sorts of things from buildings that existed prior to them but are no longer used for those things because now they've been reused for these uh, and it's a great way to kind of find old archaeology is to look at buildings where this has happened and I mean, you can look at it from your own buildings, you know, you, we, we build houses and then at some point somebody else will buy the house and they'll put their own addition on or they'll change the way something looks. They'll tear down a wall and put in a new one. Or in some cases, if you buy a building and you don't think it's worth keeping, you might tear it down and put up a new one. Well, you know, it's the same kind of thing. Eventually somebody comes along and says, well, this doesn't work for me, so let's take it all down. Uh, and a case in point of this kind of work happening, but for a slightly more uh, notorious reason, was the uh, Normans tearing down the old Roman buildings in South Wales because they had been used as palaces by the Welsh kings in the south. And so it was a way of enforcing Norman law by showing that the old ways were no longer there and that was one of the ways to do it you tear that down you put up a moat and bailey and a castle on top and everything looks very norman and a lot less like you know your your ancient king's location and you know regardless of what that building had been used for previously that that's what it got known for as being the palace of such and such a king of such and such a kingdom and all of that, of course, is something that we see even today where buildings are, in some cases, torn down, reused, rebuilt, 
you know, facades are capped, but the insides completely redone. It, it's very common, but nonetheless, when you see the castle, you, you put it in that context and it gives you an understanding of kind of what's going on. And to be fair, if, if you're someone who has a leaning towards Welsh independence, especially in that era, maybe you look at that as a good thing because those castles were symbols of your subjugation. And so I know in some cases that's been a big political discussion in Wales about these castles and and their purpose and, and what effectively the symbol of them is and how often they are used to be a symbol of oppression. And so, again, going back to a discussion which is very commonplace nowadays is how do you respect history while also respecting the the damage that that history may have done and how you respond to it. So this is something that, that if you're not in Wales, it's not something you really think about. You know, you think of these castles, you think, wow, they're really cool and really interesting and really neat and really old. But if you think about it from a different perspective, it suddenly becomes much more of a, hmm, maybe this isn't the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> so all of these things being what they are, we now go back to our story. Um, Henry had demanded this surrender of the castle, I should say, Prince Henry. Uh, a story ha was maintained in, in the annals that uh, Rhys the Black, who was sort of in charge of the castle, was sent north to ask Owen if he could submit to the English and surrender. Owen was said to have told him that he would cut his head off if he did that and that anybody who surrendered would die. And Owen was said to have made a show of this by actually coming to Aberystwyth. Now, we don't necessarily feel that this is actually a likely story. In fact, there's a lot of suggestions to say that it's actually apocryphal. But nonetheless, there is at least that idea. And it does kind of fit with Owen's temperament, at least what he shows in writings of being very violent and very much willing to show violence to others, uh, at least like I said, in his writing style that he presents. Um, attempts were probably likely made to end the siege from the Welsh end, but none were successful that we know of. We do know that the siege struggled on for around about a year, and the English lost one of its major cannons as it ended up exploding. One of the hazards of these early cannons is that they were not always manned by people who were familiar with them, and everything that had to be loaded in proper ways and proper means and proper measurements, otherwise bad things would happen. Cartridge, as I said earlier, was still a couple hundred years from being created, and that simple, easy way of loading a gun didn't exist yet, and this is the problem with early technology, early use technology specifically, is that if exact measurements were not met, things could happen. Either the cannonball wouldn't fire, uh, or it would fire but only a little ways, there'd effectively be a dud, or conversely, things like an explosion could happen when, when the forces under it were over-packed or over prioritized over the actual shell and then the shell would act as basically a block and these things would just explode and so of course killing your own men in the process so thus the reason why they weren't yet relied on to be the weapon of choice and it would only be as things got more reliable less expensive more more commonplace that that all changes as you can imagine 
In the midst of this siege in the summer of 1407, a second key base for Glyndor came under assault from the king. King Henry took his soldiers, of course, as the second arm to this assault, and prepared for a siege on Harlech, knowing that if he could catch Glyndor at his seat, he could put an end to the rebellion in one long but fell swoop. Um, it was during this period that we would see some movement in the border counties of Welsh rebels falling back to the English side. The king had offered forgiveness, pardons for those who withdrew from Glyndor and re-swore their allegiance to the king. While certainly not massive amounts took up this suggestion or this offer, it still happened and there were still names that were listed of people who did this. As happened in the past, when things start to look bad, many of the nobles in Wales measured whether the battle was worth it to them. Keep in mind that the average peasant likely were not considered and their opinions were not well known at this stage. The fact that Glyndor remained supported for years after this period, maintaining some form of rebellion even if it was only a minor little scuffle, uh, shows that at least to some extent there were people who supported his thinking and his attitude and would remain loyal long after there was sense to even do so. The fact that Owen could do little to stop or halt these troop movements into the extreme west of his country, effectively right up to his western border, likely showed that his ability to control events was slipping away, and in effect, the end was nigh, and we're not far from it. And this is where things start to go fully badly for Owen, and we are at the downside to this independence and revolt. And uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of this podcast, for your help and assistance, for your questions and comments, for your support via any method of support that you give. I really appreciate it. And uh, if you have questions, comments, and concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at Welsh History Pod. I'm also on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Have yourselves a great day. We'll talk to you next time. See ya. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.